Good evening. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. We'll get it on the first try. I like it. It is so good to see everybody. It is beautiful. I'm excited about steak. But before that, we're going to continue our journey through the Westminster Confession of Faith. So if you remember, for the last couple weeks, we are slowly chewing our way through the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is one of the confessional documents that our church adheres to, and it's a foundational document of the Protestant Reformation. And chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith is all about the Holy Scriptures. So that's what we've been looking at as we kind of slow chew our way through this. And we've discussed why we need Scripture, that we, we can't come to salvation on our own. Our, our sinful hearts get in the way of just the beautiful natural revelation that God gives us should be enough. It's all there, but because of the corruption of our own sinful hearts, God in His incredible mercy gave us the Holy Scriptures, which allow a sinful people to be reunited to a, a merciful and glorious Creator. So, we know why we need Scripture. We talked about the 66 books that make up the Christian canon. We talked about the authority of Scripture and then how the Spirit works in our hearts to bear witness to what Scripture is true because we know that God calls us first and that we respond to God's call. And that's why believers reading Scripture will be moved in a different way than unbelievers will be, people that the Holy Spirit hasn't worked in their heart yet. So, chapter 1. Paragraph 6 is going to be the text for today, and it reads, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory. That's what I really like there. It, it, it's about His own glory, not about us. And then man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. It's either there clear or it can be deduced from. Which unto nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. It's an important part there, too, the traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some, uh, are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. So what this is really telling us is that Scripture is fully sufficient. And it's also saying, I didn't put it in the notes, but Scripture lives above tradition. I can't say tradition without thinking of Fiddler on the Roof. Tradition! Yeah. But tradition is important. But tradition is just that. It's just tradition. We are establishing and developing traditions in our church now. We will hopefully have traditions for a long time, but they're just that. They're not binding. They're not the Word of God. They are traditions of how we interact with each other. I would like a Rugby World Cup tradition this year for us. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. But that does not sit above Scripture, whereas in the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, tradition and the tradition of the church dictates the manner in which Scripture is interpreted instead of allowing Scripture to sit first, which is what the Protestant reformers fought for. So really, we can think about this, that the Scripture being fully sufficient in kind of three areas. It's sufficient for all of our spiritual needs. That makes sense. It is sufficient for all time, which means it cannot be added to or taken away from. You don't get to, was it Jefferson or Franklin had his Bible where he cut out all the stuff that he didn't like? I can't remember which. Was, I think so. Yeah, I, I, I put in a, a sermon of... Uh, month or two ago. Yeah, he's like, well, I just don't like these particular words of Jesus, so we're going to cut those ones out. You can't do that either. 
you also can't add to it. And then, all, and then lastly, it is sufficient for, for principles, not every single detail. What I mean is that, and this is what it says in here, and we'll, we'll cover this a little bit more in a second, is that people can get hung up and say, well, the Bible doesn't specifically tell you how to repair your dishwasher. So it's really not sufficient for all areas. Well, well, it is. It tells you how not to throw the screwdriver across the wall or across the room, how to yell at your spouse when the dishwasher's not getting fixed. Or, or if, you're the, if you're a plumber, it tells you how to be fair in business and have good weights and measures and things like that. And so what we know is that it's sufficient in all areas for all principles of life, even if it doesn't give us the specific detail. And it's important because the Bible's our foundation. If we are to be people of the Word and we say we believe in the Word, then we have to, one, know what it says. That's why we learn and grow in this space together. But two, we have to trust that what it says is true and it is binding. Because we've heard Jesus tell us that a house built on a foundation of stone can withstand storms, a solid foundation, right? But a house built upon sand, so I've got some land down in the Everglades to sell you if, you guys, uh, if you're looking for any property, right? But if you, if you go build, build your house on, uh, on sand or the Everglades, there's a pretty decent chance it's going to sink and fall apart. Yeah. We bought some land in Arizona for when California falls off into the ocean, and it'll be Oceanside property. So uh, really hedging those multi-generational bets there. We didn't buy any land. I'm going to get an email somewhere. Someone's going to say, you bought land! I didn't buy any land. It's a joke. Okay, so the point is, these are our foundations, and they're important because what we build our foundation upon is important. We need to build on a firm foundation. We read this a lot, but it's important. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. It's funny, there are some detractors that say, well, this is in the New Testament. Paul's only speaking about Scripture for the Old Testament. But that's not true. It says all Scripture. We know, we know that, that the apostles looked at their own letters and writings. We talked about this last week, actually, about what was included in canon and why, and the way they treated these things as the Word of God, because they were. And so when Paul writes this in a letter to Timothy... He's talking about all of the things, all of the words, right? The actual word of God being complete and sufficient. It can be used for reproof and for correction and training and righteousness that the man of God may be complete and then equipped to go do every good work. It's applicable to every area in life. Similarly, Galatians 1, 8 through 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is, this is right at the beginning. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun. This is within a generation. <laughs> Jesus being alive. And they're like, well, actually, we, uh, there are a couple things he said that we didn't really like. We've gone ahead and changed those. <laughs> you know I mean? so, so Paul, again, having to remind, remind people that if, if you hear it other than the way it was preached, the way it was taught, that's not true. We, th this is important for us today. I, I look at how many denominations within the Protestant church started after 1900. That should be a big red flag. So you're saying all of the people that came before you, they weren't smart enough? They missed this glaring piece. Also, if you have to explain something that is one verse and you need to explain it with this many words, you're probably rationalizing something that's not in the Bible, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a piece of simplicity 
that, that goes on because God's Word's accessible to everybody. We, we have to start rationalizing things. We have, oh, there's a new theologian. He came out in 1984 and he found a secret in the Bible that nobody's found before. Shenanigans. I call it shenanigans. Especially when you think about the men that came before us and the reformers that came before us who put their lives on the line. It's one of the things we talked about last week. Who literally put their lives on the line to fight for the accessibility of the Word of God. They died. The less risky position would have just been to be like, nah, it's cool. People in America are not dying for their faith. There are people in the world dying to stand firm on their Christian faith. But we, we have it relatively easy. You can kind of like invent a denomination and get a TV channel and tell people all kinds of weird stuff and, and mix in a little bit of self-helpy stuff. And you end up with a gospel that is a little G, not a big G. It wasn't preached in the manner in which Jesus preached it. Because there's only one gospel and it comes from Jesus Christ. And we know this because John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no universalism. It's hard. It's hard for us, especially when we have people in our lives that might not be in faith. God can work in incredible ways, so we never lose hope. We don't know how God will work, a work in the hearts of people. But Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and He is the pathway to life. And, and this is important, I think, well, I know, because truth is actually important. We all know this. It, you with kids, when kids lie, even about little things, it's not a good deal. We, we try to cut that off immediately. I asked my kids in class, because I'm working through Proverbs, how many of them had lied. They all rose their, hand, rose their hands. I said, me too. I used to be very adept at lying. So it was a, I'm going to jokingly say, it was a gift, but it's never, it never works. It's like spinning plates in the air, and eventually the plates are all going to topple and fall, fall down. Right? And so, but we know, we know that lying is bad, we know that truth is good, and we all know that we're on a search for truth anyways. That, that, that's what we see culturally around us is this, this yearning and this desire and a search for truth looking in the wrong places. Because truth is critical. Things are either true or they're not. There's no ambiguity in the truth. And see, Jesus embodies all of the truth, and, and, and Scripture captures that for us. In the beginning, the Word. That's, a, that's John's, where's, where's the Bible here? It'll be easier to read, and I know I've read this before, and if I just stall for just a second, I can get to the beginning of John. You just talk a little bit slower. There we go. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's, it, it's really beautiful the way John captures that. And so we have been blessed that it's accessible. It's here. It's right there. It's right here. <laughs> it's great. Um, so, Jesus embodied all of the truth of Scripture, right? All the truth of life, and it's captured in Scripture. Colossians 2.9, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All of God's deity dwelt within Christ. He's fully man, He's fully God. The hypostatic union, that's, that's incredible. And so hence, Jesus is the truth, being fully man and fully God. And what does he do with that truth? He transfers that to his apostles. That's what we're, we're teeing up for church tomorrow. And then we take a couple-week break as, as we prepare ourselves for Holy Week and Palm Sunday and, and Easter. And then we'll come back. And when we come back from that, we begin in Matthew chapter 10, which is where Jesus is calling out and sending out the disciples. We're moving from, from them seeing and observing to being trained to go and do. 
Jesus transfers his knowledge to them. They have continued to transfer their, their knowledge to us. We transfer that knowledge here to, our, to generations to come because it's the truth. That's why Paul gets to proclaim in Acts 20, 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The Bible is the whole counsel of God. I said this last couple weeks. It's a love letter. And like many love letters, sometimes you have to tell the people you love things they may not want to hear. But it's the whole counsel of God, which means it's His Word, whether we like all of it or not. And thusly, it can't be added to. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of, of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. You can't add to it. If you're really careful about groups that declare that they have new prophecy. You mentioned it earlier, the Book of Mormon. What does it say on the cover of the Book of Mormon? I think it says like another testament of Jesus Christ. Another! We missed the first one. We found another one. That, that's a red flag. When we hear groups that say, well, actually, you know, these people got it wrong. We, we have this, the right copy over here. Well, no. God told us to be wary of this. God, God already gave us a heads up. And then these things happen right away. <laughs> divisions that we're, we're studying 1 Corinthians with the men's group and <laughs> talking about divisions in the church. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun. Fighting about the same stuff then that people are fighting about now. This is why we need Jesus. But you see, God put, put bookends on Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. But this is where that, that important third point comes in, that Scripture is principles, not details. It doesn't mean that, that Scripture doesn't contain details. It does. You'll hear detractors say, well, I, uh, I didn't say anything about the dinosaurs in the Bible. <laughs> ah, Christians, answer that. <laughs> Where's your God now? Ay, ay, ay. Because the Bible isn't a history book, but it contains an awful lot of history. Verifiable, archaeologically backed up history. You can go downstairs. Have Tristan go with you. Go see the kitties. You got it, Felix. He's got it. This is great. I love it. <laughs> it has a lot of history. It has verifiable history. But it is not an all-encompassing history book. Actually, in, in that period of time, people didn't even record history the way we record history now. That's why if you read the Old Testament, just start to finish, you'll be like, wow, there's a handful of places where the story repeats itself. Because it's not a linear timeline in the text. So we have re some of the reading programs that we do will help you achieve a linear timeline with the Bible. I can give you resources with that too, because sometimes, especially if you're new to reading Scripture, you can say, well, how, how, I thought this happened then and that happened over here. And you're like, well, it did, but the way the information is related isn't always linear. So what we mean by this is that in principles and not details, just because the Bible leaves out a piece of historical detail doesn't mean that the underlying principle is any less valid. That's why, that's why Jesus will speak to us through parables. All of these parables, I mean, the parables are, I took an incredible class on the parables. I did an independent study in seminary on the parables. And um, I got a C on my independent study. It's really funny because the guy that gave me the C writes basically all of the biblical exegesis textbooks that my PhD program uses. And, and here's, what he, here's the great thing 
whose name is Craig as well, but Craig said to me, when he gave me the C, he said, I don't disagree with any of your points, but your bibliography isn't long enough and it doesn't, and that, and I think you needed to spend more hours in the bibliography. So I'm deducting the letter grade based on the bibliography, not the content. But he agreed with my premise. But, but think about why Jesus speaks to us in parables. We're people of story. We respond to story. We share and we tell stories. That joke I told you before we started was a story. It elicits a response. So we can use story to speak about principle so that we can learn how to act and live our lives as, as Christians, to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. And, and all of these principles, the Puritans really understood this when they talked about preaching. They would, they would exhort the word, and then they would give the application. I hope that's what you get to experience when you come to church with us as well, is that, that you get an exhortation of the word and then an application. Because the Puritans wanted this, and, and we want this, all of Christ for all of life. Like These principles should be impacting how we interact with each other, how we recover from each other when we don't interact particularly well, and how we, we, we grow and move forward. We're going to talk tomorrow about how small groups of people can change the world. I mean, it's easy to be a little bit discouraged. How are we, how are we here in this living room going to make an impact out there in the weird mess that exists like 40 yards outside there? But we can. It's really incredible. So I'm excited about that. But see, these principles apply to everything. How we do business, how we raise our children, how we love one another, how we, how we apologize, how we forgive, how we handle our, our money, how we settle disputes. It's that love letter that, that God wrote to His beloved. And He gave us everything we need to walk the path of righteousness. Because it contains His timeless covenant with His chosen people. That's really incredible. Uh, a covenant is like a legal agreement. You can think of it as your horrible HOA if you live in an HOA. And, and, and you know, that covenant in your HOA is so binding that there's somebody always riding around to let you know what the rules are, right? But, but it exists because it keeps the houses. This might be a terrible analogy. But it keeps the houses all the right color. All, but it's there always. You can't get away from the HOA covenant. It's a negative covenant, I would say. I've never had a lot of luck with HOAs. But see, God's covenant is similar in its permanence, and it never goes away for His adopted sons and daughters, but it's glorious. There's freedom within it. There's no freedom in the HOA. There's just paint your house or we'll fine you, and you must paint it in two and a half hours. And you're like, we just got the letter. I'm like, we don't care. <laughs> Shana was born. She was born two months early. We were dead broke. We were young. We had this, this house in Parker. And we got an HOA letter that was like, you must paint your house within the next seven days. We're like, we don't have no money for paint, and now we have a baby. What do you want us to do? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to worry that someone's going to come in and paint your house pink. That is true. there's going to be chaos in the neighborhood. That's right. That is true. I, yeah, actually, I think you're absolutely right. I think I was only being persnickety because there's always that one. There's a legalistic person. You've got your one legalistic person driving around taking the photos. Yeah, scripture is taken to a legalistic Yeah, see? That's perfect. But when you live within the freedom of the boundaries of the covenant, 
Everything's really great. See, it was a good example, and you brought me back on track. Thank you. That was actually wonderful. You're, you're totally right, because when it goes to legalism, it's a mess, and that's what I recoil poorly against. We do have pink houses in our neighborhood. We do have some pink houses, true. Um, Well, and 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 <laughs> definitely underneath seven amounts of multiple amounts of stonings due to working on Sunday. It's it's really incredible because if you understand the freedom that comes from Christian liberty, from knowing where the boundaries of the covenant are, like you're talking about, it's not that God's law isn't perfect. God's law is perfect. We can't. We can't uphold it perfectly because of the sin in our hearts. And so God extends us the grace for our inability to uphold His law perfectly while continuously sanctifying us, drawing us closer and closer. Like it's, it's this really beautiful uh, growth process that comes out. And then we get actual true freedom and true liberty within it, which is really great. That's why we get to come here and do this. So Scripture contains God's covenant with us. The covenant that began all the way at the beginning and, and is continuing with us to this day. And see, we then respond also to this because we acknowledge that it's the Spirit that leads us. It says, it also applies to us as a church. And there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church, common to human actions and societies, should be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of, his, of the word, which are always to be observed. You see, and look at this. This is how well you teed this up for me. My next words are, this is Christian liberty. It is. It gives us the boundary markers. We work within them. But it's also, not just us as individuals, it's us as a church body as well. The universal church, the, the little C Catholic church. And this is what I love about the CREC. This is my shameless CREC plug. You get, you get in churches like one I had worked for previously, they say, well, we're a really big tent. You go, oh, that's cool. I, I believe in the church universal. Like, except if you have the following ideas. You're like, that's not a big tent. But the problem was the following ideas for them were things that were, um, that were in, in, in direct contrast to scriptural truths. For example, they have, I've said this before, uh, at least one or two pastors within that denomination locally that does not believe Jesus rose from the dead. That is a foundational scriptural truth problem if you don't believe that. You can't actually be a Christian if you don't believe that. Whereas the CREC says, hey, we, we want to come together as the Orthodox Church, the Catholics, little c, univer, uh, universal church, that all we want is that we all agree that Scripture is Scripture. It is foundational. As long as your church adheres to a creed or confession, we can disagree on all the secondary matters, baptizing babies, baptizing believers only, um, some guys wear collars, some guys don't. My buddy Brian's church has a guitar, we don't. We're probably more significantly more liturgical than he is, though they, they are liturgical. I would say high church liturgical. They're liturgical, delightfully so. Slightly different flavors, but all foundationally believe the exact same thing that the Bible is the Word of God. That is the big tent, which allows you the, the worship style differences while still honoring and, and loving the Lord. I love this, and I love that he can talk. 
don't know if you guys love that he can talk as you guys love that he can talk as much, but we we love it here. But the idea is that fun, fundamentally, foundationally, we believe the same things. We subscribe to the same confessions. We worship the same God. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons do not. When you have, when you have churches that have Presbyterian in the title, but the pastor doesn't believe Jesus rose from the dead, they are not worshiping the same God. They're an apostasy. But what this means is when we are within the churches that are in this, the, the, the universal tent, we're going to have to deal with some circumstances that are going to pop up that are common to humans and common to the governance of life where we may not have the specific example. But what Paul has given us from the early letters to the early church, what Acts has given us, what Jesus has taught us, what the Old Testament has laid the foundation for, or how to apply all of those principles no matter what the situation whether it's a budget meeting at a church or whether it's an interaction between two believers or whether it's the raising of your family, Scripture is sufficient for all of these things. And that's what's really great about it. Because like, like that earlier example is when we live within the boundaries of that liberty, you're free. You're free. You are totally free. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> She's like, well, you can make it up to me if you just pet me a bunch and I'll be super happy and I'll forget right now. So... Um, that's what I want you to think about this week to wrap up the time here is how beautiful it is that Scripture is sufficient for every area of your life. doesn't mean you're going to execute it within every area of your life perfectly. But you know, and you can go back to, it's every area of your life. I had, I had, a, I had kind of a rough day yesterday. I had a really rough day yesterday. Some days are just like that. And then I read a bunch of Job while I was having a rough day. And parts of Job made my day a little rougher. But when I got to the end of Job and to see and to continuously watch God's hand, my day got a lot better. Sufficient for all areas of life. There's lots of lament in the Bible. When you have a crummy day, you can lament because the, because the people that came before us had an opportunity to lament. But it always drives us back to the sufficiency of God and His goodness for us. Oh, it's funny. I thought that was a toy there, but it was just Felix's um, uh, overalls. That's really great. So, what a blessing. And it, in, it we, talk about the, we talk about the gospel being the good news. Part of the fact that it is the good news is that God revealed himself to each and every one of us because he loves us. He, he has given us a gift that is unparalleled to any other gift, better than riches, better than gold, better than the finest silver. It's God's actual word given to the people that he loves to reunite us to him. Sinful people who have, who have been enemies of the Lord are reunited through his grace and mercy. And that is incredibly, incredibly good news. So let's sing. The grill's already like 500 degrees. I'm going to go throw the steaks on the grill and then we're going to feast. <laughs>